So we're going to read um, actually three passages in total, but two just now and then uh, one a little later on. Um, so we're going to read the, 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 the kind of forgotten passage, if you like. Um, what I mean by the forgotten passage, I mean the, the passage that sits between uh, the death of Jesus, which we remember on Good Friday, and the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday morning. And in between, there's the account of the burial of Jesus, which often gets missed out because uh, unless you're part of a church tradition or have been that has services on Saturday, or unless there's some other rhythm that you've been used to, often it's the passage that can be lost. So we're going to read Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. And then from there, I'm going to go straight on and read John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18, um, John's account of the resurrection. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. And so from John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him 
and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. Transformation is uh, something that appeals to all of us in one way or another. We love the notion of a, a positive transformation. Uh, some months ago now, uh, Ruth and I bought a, a flat on the south side, and we've been doing it up for about nine months. I don't think when we took it on, we realized just how much work was involved in doing it up. But we now have the satisfaction of the before and after pictures. Who doesn't love the before and after pictures? Let's face it, there's an awful lot of clickbait on the internet that is designed to draw you in because of before and after pictures. See how these celebrities have aged terribly. I lost this much weight. And you have to click through 46 different pages with loads of advertising and pop-ups in order to get to that one final photograph that you started out looking for. Makeover programs are big business. Makeover uh, channels are big business on YouTube and the internet, whether it be uh, grand designs or changing rooms. Some of you are too young to know what that is, or ground force and so on. People love the whole concept of taking something that was maybe perhaps uh, a little tired or a little hopeless or a little uh, shrouded in decay and age, and then seeing it transformed into something uh, that is the same but different. The same but different. And I suppose, looking around at you, if your mums and dads were here, they would be able to say, yes, they're the same but different. <laughs> I remember when he, she was a chubby little baby with blonde curly hair. How many of you had blonde hair, by the way, when you were young? Usually all the dark-haired people have blonde hair when they were young. Okay. You are not who you once were. I checked my uh, facts because there is an urban myth going around that says all the cells in your body uh, are renewed every seven years. Well, apparently that is an urban myth and is not true. A significant number of your cells are renewed, and different cells of different parts of your body uh, die and are replaced in varying lengths of time. Apparently, the cells in your gut last a mere four hours before they are replaced. But there are other cells that last a lot longer. And the ones, uh, I think it's the neurons in your brains, or the neurotype, yeah, yeah, science. Um, anyway, the neurons in your brain uh, don't, they don't change your entire life. So they are, the cells are not renewed. Some may die, but they're not replaced. And so there are parts of your body uh, that remain the same biologically, and there are parts of your body that are constantly being changed and uh, altered. And you don't look the same as you did. Transformation is embedded into the very nature of creation. I 
found myself last Christmas preaching the resurrection <laughs> because we were preaching at the evening service through Mark's gospel, or I was preaching, actually. Uh, I was preaching Mark's gospel, and uh, just because of the way the weeks fell out, the four weeks of Jesus' passion and death and resurrection uh, landed just over Advent. It was a kind of strange experience, and yet I'm profoundly grateful for it because a little consequence of preaching on the, uh, Jesus' passion and death and burial at the same time as we were all thinking about the weeks leading up to Jesus' birth, uh, I found an interesting thing I would never otherwise have found. And I found myself reflecting on this passage that I read to you from Mark, the burial of Jesus. And I found something uh, really quite interesting because I found myself setting Mary and Joseph, not Joseph who was the uh, stepdad, the, the husband of Mary to Jesus, but Joseph of Arimathea. I find myself putting Mary and Joseph together because it was Christmas and because we were preaching this passage. And I saw something that I'd never really seen before, which I found quite moving. I found, I realized that Mary, in all of her possibly 12 to 14-year-old youth and innocence, a peasant girl of no particular standing except she was in the, uh, she had found favor with the Lord, and Mary was asked to give uh, space, as it were, to Jesus, to the Word being made flesh in her body. In other words, Mary was being asked to to offer her womb, as it were, to the living God, in order that Jesus, the Son of God, might be incarnate. And so Mary gave that most personal and intimate place, a place of birth and life, over to God, that He might use that, or that that might be for Him a place of, of transformation. After all, that is the place, is it not? where Jesus took flesh and came into the world, the place of life, the place of birth, the place of beginning. And we read that Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And so God's Word, His promise, everything that He declared about the coming Messiah took flesh. And so Jesus, who was made, uh, took human form. And we, we read it in the prayer meeting earlier on in, in the Philippian hymn. Let me just remind you again. Of, of what it says there, that Jesus, who being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so there's this place of birth, this place of transformation, this place of life, where Jesus depended on the willingness of Mary in order to come amongst us and take human flesh. And I find myself comparing Mary's offer of her womb to Jesus' offer of his tomb. Because Joseph, who couldn't have been more different from Mary, a wealthy Pharisee, a man of status, a man of means and resources, a man who had quietly and secretly, despite the overwhelming opinion of the rest of the Pharisees with Nicodemus had recognized in Jesus the Messiah. 
And Joseph opened up to Jesus that arguably most intimate personal space that he had to offer, which was the place not of his birth but of his death. And Joseph opened his own tomb and gave it as an offering to Jesus that Jesus might lie in it. And what struck me looking about or thinking about those two passages was that both of them were places of profound transformation. Through Mary, Jesus took flesh and came into this world. And through Joseph, in that tomb, a mystery took place. And yes, in in some respects, we're told in Scripture that Jesus in that time between his death and his resurrection, went and and preached, declared victory, broke the shackles of, of death, the sentence of hell, went all the way down into the place that had hung as a curse over all of us since God had warned Adam and Eve that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And they had died. They had died in the fullness of what they were created and intended to be. We all, to an extent, are, are, are dead, dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Jesus. We are dead in that we are not all that we were created or intended to be. When God breathed his life into Adam and Eve, when he breathed life into them, he gave them a fullness of life, which was not just physical, but was spiritual as well. You may remember, the, the, it's not that long since we looked at the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. And his clothes gleamed like lightning, and he was visibly changed, and Moses and Elijah were there. And so the the barriers of time and space were removed. The limitations of our dull physicality were, 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 were removed, if you like, and Jesus was revealed in all the fullness of his spiritual body. You see, what we lost when we died in the garden was that fullness of the physical and the spiritual. All fused. My friends, we were created to be far more than what we are. The miracles that Jesus performed time after time after time were, if I say simply, I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but they were a demonstration of what a physical and a spiritual body working in the world are meant to look like, where the obstacles of disease, of sickness, of the limitations of food, of the ability to walk on water or or manipulate the physical elements of the world are no longer an obstacle. You see, there's a level above And Jesus went right back to the place where through sin and disobedience the curse of death had come in, causing us to die spiritually and simply remain as these kind of lumpen physical creatures, dull in our thinking, blind in our spiritual understanding, limited 
from all the fullness that we were intended to be. And you see, God sent Jesus on a mission, and first He asked Mary that He might be enfleshed and come into the lumpen physical experience of human beings, just like us, taking human likeness, and then going all the way, turning back the disobedience, turning back the temptations that Adam and Eve had succumbed to in the the Garden of Eden by, in the wilderness, resisting temptation, resisting the ambition to be like God, which was Adam and Eve's downfall, proclaiming the advance of the kingdom and the restoration of the full life, resurrection life that we were created for and intended for, and taking the burden of all of our sin and our shame and our guilt upon Himself upon that cross, and offering Himself, the Lamb of God, to pay the price that we, my friends, might have the hope, not just of resurrection, but of transformation. Which is why when Jesus appeared to Mary outside the tomb, she couldn't recognize Him. Indeed, I've looked at every single one of the resurrection appearances, and I think there's an argument that says on every single occasion, they couldn't recognize Jesus. When He appeared on the first day of the week, that day in the evening, they they couldn't believe they didn't know who He was. He had to show them His hands and His side. For Thomas, a week later, He had to show him His hands and His side. The disciples walking on the Emmaus Road could not recognize Jesus until in the breaking of bread, He revealed Himself to them. I reckon if you walk seven miles beside someone, sooner or later you get a glimpse of what they look like, and yet they were not able to see or recognize who He was. When they went with Jesus in Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, we're told that they went to the mountain where they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Doubted what? Why would you doubt if you can see and know that that's Jesus? When they sat on the shore where Jesus broke bread and had a picnic breakfast with them in John 21, they sat at close proximity with Him, and then it says, none of them dared ask Him who He was. They knew He was the Lord. Where was the doubt (laughs) at such close quarters? You see, on every single occasion, it seems that that they weren't 100% sure, or some of them. There was doubt. What was that? Jesus was transformed. He appeared in a room where the doors were locked. He had substance because they could touch Him, and He ate with them. You see, in that tomb Jesus entered into, a full experience of restored humankind, not just raised from death to life, but raised beyond death and beyond the life that we know to a life in all its fullness, which is where we are invited to follow. The glory of resurrection is not just coming back to life. It is complete transformation, complete restoration to the fully spiritual body and being, the fusion of body and spirit where we will be with God and we will see Him. And I don't know what my resurrection body or yours will look like. I know it will be better than this, but it's not hard. 
Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now let me just go on from there to verse 35, Anne, if we can, please. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life until it, unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. And fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we celebrate the resurrection knowing that we, a pilgrim people, are on a journey with bodies that are failing and growing older and getting weaker, but there are seeds in preparation to be sown. The life-giving, resurrection power of the imperishable Son of God, the spiritual man, fully restored, who took the first fruits, which is why he wasn't he told Mary not to hold on to him. Here is this risen body to be brought holy and uncontaminated, as it were, into the presence of Almighty God as the first fruits. And you, my friends, if you are in Christ and have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you too, by that faith, have crossed over into the promise of forgiveness and salvation, of resurrection and transformation. And you are the crop. He is the first fruits, and you are the crop. And it grieves me to read, and maybe you haven't seen the news this morning, it grieves me to read that in Sri Lanka today, a number of explosions have gone off targeting churches and hotels. At least 200-plus people have been killed, and there's some 450 people have been wounded. And deliberately, Christian churches on Easter Sunday were targeted for that attack. And that makes me grieve and feel sad and sorrowful. And I don't want to take away from the tragedy or the trauma, but I want to say to the spiritual realm and to the entities that provoked and put in the minds of the people that did that, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You just sent 200-plus believers into the transformation that Jesus' resurrection guaranteed and sealed for them. You just brought them into their inheritance in Jesus, and I grieve for the trauma of those who remain, and we pray for the people who are wounded in hospital, and we are devastated for the communities and the churches that are affected by that. But let us not on Easter Sunday let trauma or tragedy or loss rob us of the victory that Jesus came to guarantee and seal. And I don't know when my transformation day will be, and you don't know when your transformation day will be. But you know, all too often we live our lives with this uh, fear of growing old and getting weaker and approaching death, and, and understandably with its uncertainties. And in this world where what we can see so often is, is suffering and, and, and difficulty and pain, 
We see a world groaning because of climate change. We see protests rising. We experience all manner of struggles and difficulties, and we see broken lives, and our hearts are broken. We are on our way to transformation. And Jesus will never allow that to be undone or undermined. And whatever struggles you know personally, or whatever struggles you feel in your heart for those that you care about or for this groaning world, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because Jesus entered through a teenage girl's womb who gave her permission and came bringing and ushering in the kingdom of God to all who would believe and receive it. And he lay in Joseph's tomb on behalf of all of our tombs. He lay in the place of our death and broke it and disintegrated it and was raised to life and transformed that he, the firstfruits, might gather in this bumper crop The book of Revelation gives us a little picture of it. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the promise waiting to be fulfilled. That's the promise of resurrection that gives us life and hope in the here and now. And yes, we continue as pilgrims through this world with its challenges and its struggles and its ups and its downs. But nonetheless, we're a people in whose hearts has been sown the promise, not just of resurrection, but of transformation and of a fully restored humanity, the like of which we have not even begun to glimpse why Paul talks about seeing through a glass darkly, barely being able to grasp. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. And with our spirits, we sense the massive, growing, roaring hallelujah of all that Jesus has done for you and for me who are in Christ and for all who will look beyond this world and this life and know that he has done it. Let's pray together.